This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. We've got an expert uh, on the show, and we're going to be talking about three stocks that we probably haven't spoken a lot about um, that in industries that we probably don't speak enough about. So I'm excited for this one. That's it. We love going deep on stocks and that's what we're going to do. It is our pleasure to welcome to the studio, Gaurav Sodi. Gaurav, welcome. Morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Gaurav is the Deputy Head of Research at Intelligent Investor. Intelligent Investor publishes in-depth analysis and recommendations for ASX-listed companies aimed at Australian investors managing their own direct portfolio. So thank you to Invest Smart for sponsoring this episode. And before we begin, it is important to recognise that Gurav operates under an Australian financial services licence, but that any advice he gives is general in nature. He's not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Ren and I, on the other hand, do not operate under an AFSL. And as always, <laughs> nothing we say should be taken as advice, which is why we get the experts in. <laughs> so, uh Gaurav, we always start with the story of your first investment. So if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing, taking uh, taking yourself back to that story of where you first got into the markets or whatever asset class it was, um, what's the story of your first investment? Wow. You know, I have spent years trying to erase this memory from my mind and uh, and you, you're paining me and bringing it back up again. <laughs> this is... Um, <laughs> This is kind of embarrassing, but uh, look, in, in my defense, I was very young, extremely green, and I didn't know what I was doing, but let, let's go through it. All right. So the first stock I ever bought was Computer Share, which actually doesn't sound too wild and crazy, right? It sounds pretty sensible, but I, I can make it sound wild and crazy. The reason <laughs> I bought this stock, you know, back in the day, we're talking about the, the 90s here, there was no internet. We didn't have, um, I had an online broker, but I certainly didn't have any data feeds. I used to go through the newspaper where they listed all the stocks and for about a week, I was just looking at what was going up and, uh, and computer share was going up and I thought, oh, well, I'm onto something here. I know computers are pretty big in the future. Uh, I, I know the price is going up. Um, I'm, I'm going to buy me some of that. 
<laughs> I don't think the the stock did it did very much at all. Look, I didn't make any money. I didn't lose any money. It, it was just a, a a silly thing to do, and um, it took me years to really understand why it was stupid. Which was the worst part of all. I'd rather make a quick loss or a quick gain and, and learn lessons. But when nothing happens for a long time. You forget about it, and the lesson doesn't hit, and it's just a wasted opportunity. I, I prefer it if if you if you jump into a stock for the wrong reason, you learn your lesson fast. Unfortunately, I learned my lesson slowly. Mm, yeah. Well, speaking of learning lessons, from uh, that first investment to now, have you, uh, I guess, developed learned enough lessons to develop a personal investing philosophy? You're absolutely spot on there. I, I really believe that investing is is personal. That there are lots of different ways to make money in the market. There's no one correct way. I mean, there are better ideas than others. I think that's certainly <laughs> true. But ultimately, you have to first understand yourself before you can understand what kind of investor you are. And I think that's why in our youth, um, so many of us are such lousy investors. It's because we don't have the experience with ourselves. We don't know ourselves enough to understand what works and what doesn't. It's It's not that we lack financial skills. It's that we lack self-knowledge. And that's something they don't teach you at university. They don't teach you in class. But I think it's really, really important um, to be a successful investor is to understand what kind of person you are, what risks you can take, what your psychology is made up of, and work with that as, as a raw base. So, Gurev, you've been at The Intelligent Investor since 2009. Correct me if I'm wrong. Can you talk us through just your, your journey there and perhaps some of the major lessons that you've taken from the market activity? We've been through a pretty significant bull run going from uh, GFCs through until what, start of last year, this year? Uh, some of the major lessons that you've taken from that period. Yeah, in, Intelligent Investor has a really rigorous um, screening process. Um, I remember coming in and doing a whole series of detailed financial tests um, you know, they put a couple of um, blank, uh, um, uh, covered up balance sheets in front of you. You have to uh, give detailed insights about these companies. Um, uh, and it takes hours and hours to do. And I systematically failed every single one of those tests <laughs> <laughs> over hours and hours. <laughs> and um, I, I still to this day don't understand why they gave me the job because I knew nothing about investing. I wanted to do investing, to be honest, boys, because um, I was working in economics at the time. Um, I was a professional economist. I wanted to do something where, you know, being a contrarian was rewarded. You know, I always felt like I was a bit of an outsider at work. Um, there was all these rules I didn't really want to adhere to. You know, you have to act a certain way, you have to behave in a certain mold, and you're only rewarded in a regular job if you fit those boundaries. You know, if you behave in that way, if you dress in that way, if you speak those words, there are rules that constrain your um, your how far you can go. But investing is completely different. Investing is the only and only field I can think of where you're rewarded for being the outsider, where you're encouraged to be the contrarian, where being the the weird guy with the weird opinions actually counts it actually benefits you and um I, I saw that and i thought well that i'd like to do that <laughs> i knew nothing about investing but i'm really grateful i got a shot and, and i've learned everything i've learned about investing has come from my my colleagues and, and mentors love that um, and i'm grateful for them so Grove, speaking about the team at intelligent investor you all publish a lot of research on asx listed companies we 
uh, have been having a look over the past few days and there's a bunch of great stuff on there. For this episode, we wanted to give a, I guess, a taste of some of the analysis that people can expect if they go to Intelligent Investor. So we've chosen three companies that you cover. Bryce and I often get criticized for speaking too much about tech and not enough about mining. Mm -hmm. So uh, (laughs) you might see that we're overcorrecting with some of the companies we've chosen today. But the three that we've chosen are Orica, the world's largest explosives maker, Washington H. Sol Pattinson, uh, which I think you called a ready-made portfolio. So we're excited to talk (laughs) about that. Uh, and then Mineral Resources, um, a pretty incredible share market story. You just have to look at their chart going back over a decade. Um, and, and one that you say breaks almost every s- rule of sensible investors. So we're excited to get into that one as well. But let's start with Orica. I don't think a lot of people will be familiar with this company, but it is the world's largest explosives maker. Maybe give us a high-level overview of who the company is, what it does. Yeah, so you're, you're right, um, Ren. It's it's the world's largest explosive explosives maker and explosives is a crucial part of the mining process. Before you can do anything, before you can get um, material out of the ground, you need to dig it up. And and to do that uh, generally involves a series of, uh, of wild explosions. Now, in the old days, explosions were, were pretty unstructured and they were pretty random. Um, but these days, in, in modern times, in terms of modern mining, explosives is a highly regulated, detailed specialization. Um, dust particles get analyzed. You have to deal with noise regulation, um, pollution regulation, and there's an incredible amount of safety regulation involved. It's a specialist task. It's an important task. It, it attracts a huge amount of the risk in mining, um, but covers only a small amount of the cost of mining. And so, and so it's an area where miners typically don't like to cut costs or, or to uh, take shortcuts. And that is exactly why Orica has the makings of a decent business. So Gaurav, Orica has uh, made it onto the watch list um, for Intelligent Investor. Uh, but we noticed in the article that you wrote, it said uh, Orica now generates less revenue than it did a decade ago and just a third of the profit. Margins and returns mm. on assets have collapsed while earnings per share has been decimated. <laughs> so... <laughs> So how does um <laughs> so, so, so how does Orica find itself on your watch list? Yeah, it's had a really bad ten year period, um, and there are two main reasons for that. I would say ten years ago, Orica was squarely in the high quality business category. It generated really good returns on capital, consistent and high margins. And it was an important part of that whole mining chain. Um, and then it does what so many businesses doing so well do, which is it goes off and makes a silly acquisition. Um, in this case, it made several of them. Um, they tried to get into uh, the, um, un- the the underground stabilization market. And, and that's that's quite a niche. Uh, what the, when you're mining underground, you need a whole series of capsules, bolts, and hardware to keep the mine from collapsing. Um, and especially when you're going deep down, um, you need a whole series of bits and pieces to keep the, uh, the mine shafts open and safe. So they bought a producer of, of all that equipment and that, uh, that company, along with another business, um, was folded into Orica and became a large part of Orica. And what happened was that um, a large part of those revenues came from underground coal mining. And, and we all know what happened to underground coal mining. The volumes just collapsed. And that business... 
almost worthless. Um, so a whole bunch of um, uh, capital, so $1.7 billion or so was allocated towards a whole, a, a big segment that never really worked for Oracle. It was just a big distraction from for them and led to a lot of shareholder loss. Now, while that was all happening, the industry itself has been changing. You know, older investors remember big miners as big capital sinks. Mining used to be about digging as much as you could, as quickly as you could, and it wasn't really about financial returns or returns on capital. Now, that changed um, after the big mining boom. Um, and I would say around 2011, 2012, about 10 years ago, that started to change. We saw um, a change in the board and management of the big miners, and we saw a change in their emphasis. Gone were the days where success was measured by output alone, and, and these miners became super disciplined in their costs and in their volumes, and the ma metric that mattered most was shareholder returns. And, and that's where we find the industry today. The industry today is nothing like it was when I first started looking at it more than a decade ago. Um, it was run by a bunch of yahoos who were only interested <laughs> in volume and building bigger and bigger businesses. It is now a properly uh, well-run industry run by the accountants interested in financial returns. Now, that's great if you hold mining stocks. If you're a supplier to the mining industry, that means there's far less revenue in it for you. And um, instead of being a, instead of capturing um, uh, profits from uh, the largest of the miners, you end up being effectively a supplier to a duopoly. And uh, it, being a mining services provider today is akin to supplying coals and bullies. You know, it's an invitation to generate low returns supplying to very powerful businesses. Yeah, right. Uh, that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that. If we zoom out from Orica a little bit and we look at the capital allocation decision Orica made and what we can learn from that when we're analyzing any business, mm. basically it was a lost decade because they allocated capital poorly, got into a business that they, you know, that was on the decline and and you know, you, you really told the story there. As an investor looking at a company's activities, looking at their financial results. What are some of the red flags that investors probably could have seen early days that this wasn't working? How has it sort of informed your investment analysis after watching what I imagine was a slow-moving train wreck? Um, yeah, what, what can we learn and what can we take uh, when analyzing other businesses? I think we have to be very aware of what the business is trying to do. Now, the idea behind the initial move into underground mining was to expand the product suite. They thought they had all these relationships with major miners. They were selling them a whole bunch of stuff. If they had more stuff to sell, they could use those relationships and increase volumes through their distribution channels. I get, it wasn't a crazy idea. I think there was some initial sense in what they were doing. I think the mistake was persisting with the idea when it was clear that it wasn't working. You know, this didn't collapse overnight. There wasn't um, just one big write-off. Over a period of 10 years, it, it was clear within within 18 months to two years that, that the acquisition was not working, that the strategy was going to fail. And instead of acknowledging then, acknowledging the mistake then, stepping back and saying, okay, we got this one wrong, let's go back to doing what we were doing, they doubled down. They made another acquisition, about a billion dollars, and they doubled down on a bad idea because they couldn't admit that they had made an error in the first place. And I see this again and again. I would much rather be in a business that tries things, fails, and, uh, and moves on, acknowledges the mistake and moves on, rather than in a business that refuses to acknowledge error, always trying to be right, 
and doubles down on mistakes. Um, uh, that, that's, the, that's the glaring error here. The, trying something new and making a mistake is no sin. We should welcome that. Mm. Nothing ever happens if you don't try things. You know, I, I have no problem with that. It, it's the inability uh, to move on from mistakes that's the sin. So, Gaurav, I guess the, the question begs then if it's on the watch list, um, you know, you've just laid out what has occurred for Orica, but what, what does the future hold? Like what, what is of interest to you and, and why? What's the, the, the bull case for the next sort of decade or so? Yeah, one of the hard things is um, coming back to a, a business that has disappointed for a long time and looking at it with fresh eyes and seeing it as, as pregnant with potential. You know, it's easy to look at a business that's failed over a long time and just say, yeah, that's a crappy business. Write it off and never look at it again. I think our job is really to um, to be more imaginative than that and, and try and, and look at businesses with fresh eyes as quickly or as often as we can. And I think there is a change afoot at Orica. That board has been cleaned out. Management is new. They've sold the offending business. They've acknowledged the error. You know, and I think that's important. And it's only there are only words. But it's important to acknowledge that you made a mistake and, and to say that you're not going to do it again. You know, I, I think, you know, a, a parent would say that to a child and investors should say that to the, of their companies as well. I think it's important. Now, all through that, that, that 10 years, Orica had continued to invest in their explosives business. And they're investing in some really interesting tech. I mean, uh, you, you know, I, I know you guys li- like your tech and, and Orica, you wouldn't think of it as being a tech business, but there is some really important technology being developed inside Orica. They have pioneered wireless explosives, which is a really big deal for the industry. Now, the way explosives historically have worked is that you drill holes into sort of dozens or hundreds of sites around where you want to um where you want to load something you have to close with explosives and then someone has to manually wire up all those dots someone has to go around where there's live explosives and wire them all up and then you detonate them afterwards what orica has done is it's come up with um with a technology that sends low frequency radio waves to wirelessly detonate everything and it saves having people crawling all over a live detonation site. So it's it's safer. They are world leaders at that. Um, it's an important change in the industry. And I think that can be the driver of future profit, potential margin growth and potential revenue growth as that de- um, wireless detonation takes hold. So they fixed up their fixed up their capital allocation policy. There's new management in there. And there's really interesting piece of technology in there as well. The miners themselves, they're having gone through 10 years of really disciplined capital allocation, I think they're finding that there's not much new rock for them to, to dig up. And so I, I think there's, there's probably a, a case for, for greater capital expenditure for the miners. So there's both a structural improvement coming from Orica and maybe a cyclical improvement as well. And very few people are interested in this stock. I mean, that, that's a trifecta um, as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely on the watch list. Wow, the trifecta. The trifecta, yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, we'll move on to the next one, Gaurav. Uh, the next one is Washington H. Sol Pattinson. The ASX ticker is SOL. It is one of Australia's oldest businesses. It's a conglomerate. But how would you explain Sol Pats to someone who thinks it's just a chemist chain? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm guilty of that as well. Um, I, I once thought this was just a chemist chain and uh, I couldn't understand waiting anyone would buy this. Um, I, I think the most common description of this I've heard is a conglomerate. Most people think it's a mishmash of different assets and businesses. Um, they own uh, big stakes in New Hope Corporation, which is a coal mine. They've been um, in TPG, of course, the, the telco, and they just sold a big stake in API, a chemist chain. 
Along with that, they own a long um, and brickworks, of course. Um, I'm sorry, they also own a big, ch a big chunk of brickworks. And then there's a long line of sort of equity investments they own as well. This is a, a business run by um, really um, a, a family, a multi-generational family, the, the Milners. Um, as you say, it's one of the oldest listed stocks on the ASX. And it's fashionable to call this a conglomerate. I would actually call this a listed private equity firm. And the difference between the two is a conglomerate runs uh, a fixed asset suite and doesn't look to add and exit from its business lines, whereas a, a Solpats or a listed PE firm changes its asset base, is willing to trade assets, buys and sells assets as the price is right. And we just saw them make a big gain on the API sale. They're adding to their assets all the time. I think this is more of an actively managed portfolio than it is a conglomerate. And that's why I think if you're relatively new to the share market and you don't know where to go, I'm not a huge fan of ETFs um, in the Australian market. I think ETFs in Australia uh, make very little sense because the structure of our market is so concentrated. You know, 50% is in banks and resources. 80% is probably in a couple of, um, add a couple of, add half a dozen stocks to those and you get about 80% of our market. It's not enough diversification for an ETF buyer and it's not even that high quality for an ETF buyer. It's, it's a singularly bad decision to buy ETF if, uh, to gain access to the Australian market. Fine in the US, not so good here. An alternative to that, if you want to be a low-risk, well-diversified investor and you don't want to do it yourself, I think Solpats offers you a ready-made portfolio that's handled with care, that has a long track record, where the people running that portfolio own big chunks of it themselves. And this is, has to be one of the most conservatively, carefully managed businesses I've come across. You know, you look at the annual report, there are no pretty pictures. It's all just printed in black and white. They're not interested in fads and fashions. They have the same process um, as they've had for decades. If you're, a, if you're an investor who doesn't want to do very much, but wants to be, wants to be able to sleep at night, this offers you a ready-made portfolio where you don't have to think too much, but everything is sensible in here and, and done thoughtfully. There's a certain type of investor who would be really attracted to that, and this, this suits them in particular. Mm. So there's a few there's a few threads to pull on there. I think the quote it is a singularly bad investment to buy an ETF to get access to the Australian market will ruffle some feathers. Uh, but that's not actually the thread that I that I want to pull on. <laughs> um, I I think the description of uh, Solpats as a as a bit of a private equity firm makes a lot of sense. Um, obviously they've got all the big players. They also own a swim school, which I learned when doing some research. So, um, they got yes, a, that's right. <laughs> they got a wide range of yeah. business interests, but I think when you talk Solpats, you have to have the coal conversation because the coal miners have been some of the best performers of the last few weeks. But the industry is seen as one that will see structural decline as uh, demand shifts to. Uh, I guess, sorry, electricity generation shifts to other forms and coal demand falls as a result. Uh, they own 40 or just under 40% of New Hope, which is one of Australia's largest coal miners. So a lot of, I guess, your returns around Solpats will be linked to New Hope. Where's your head at about coal? You obviously look at a lot of miners um, across the ASX. Where's your head at around coal more generally? I'm neck deep in it. Uh, Ren, uh, coal. Um, we've been bullish on coal. <laughs> we've been bullish on coal um, for 
for about two years. Our first recommendation on Whitehaven was at 97 cents. You know, we've been buying uh, New Hope for, for, for more than probably, probably about 18 months. Um, so we got in on the ground floor on coal. Um, and, you know, um, you know, I know I understand there are people who don't want to touch it. That's the opportunity. My interest in coal wasn't because I particularly think it's a, there's a strong demand case for it. In fact, um, you know, I'm aware that, that coal demand is falling and it's likely to be continue to fall. It, it could drivel up to uh, dry up to zero within um, 10 or 20 years. I, I'm aware of all that. So the supply matters as well. And while the demand is, is so uncertain, the supply is, is responding to that. There's been no investment in new coal supply it's impossible for anyone to open a mine, to get funding for a mine, to get regulation or insurance or investors for a mine. Um, so no matter what you do, you can't open a coal mine up, both here in Australia and all over the world. That's pretty interesting. You know, if you've got a situation where you can't open, you can't add to the supply and you've got a situation where people do not want to buy for non-financial reasons. You know, even if these things were making lots and lots of money, you just you just can't get buyers for the equity, and um, and that's why we initially um, went into coal, um, and that's why it, we're neck deep in it now. It, you know, we run a couple of um, listed portfolios on the ASX, and and two of them um, have significant coal positions. For me personally, uh, about a third of my personal portfolio was in coal. Wow. Um, looks like a great decision now, but I can tell you, eighteen months ago when. Um, when no one wanted to touch it and these things weren't looking so attractive, it was a very difficult call to make. And for me, um, that's something I admire about the Milners. That's something I admire about Soulpats. They're not just in there to follow a, fa a fashion or a fad. They're willing to back themselves, um, willing to stick to an idea if they think it makes sense. And, and, and that, that mixture of, of flexibility in changing your asset base and changing your investments but also having conviction when it's required, that's a really rare trait. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased we were able to demonstrate that with Cole at Intelligent Investor, but it's something I really admire about the, the Soulpats team as well. And they've demonstrated that for decades. We were uh, lucky enough to actually interview Tom Milner. So uh, we'll include an episode link in our show notes. Uh, if you're interested in listening to that, uh, I would agree. It was a, a, a really insightful interview as to how they think about um, long-term investing. Um, so before we move on, Gaurav, there was a, a quote from the article that you wrote on Solpats, which you titled Solpats, uh, an instant portfolio. And you said, as an investment company, the accountants make statutory profits meaningless, and we consider cash flow, dividends, and growth in asset value the key measures of success. Are you able just to elaborate on that one? It's really important to understand a little bit of accounting as an investor. This is something um, I know from experience. When I first started, I knew nothing about accounting. And I've spent years reading tomes of accounting books um, to get to grip with it. And I find that absolutely a key advantage. So many investors don't understand accounting. And so they just trust numbers that are presented to them. They screen for PEs. They look at net profit. They look at ROE without understanding how those things are constructed. And if you do understand that, I think it's a key advantage. And, and Solpats is a good example of that. So their, their profit numbers, you know, they, they, they print profit and, and, um, and the PE is there to see, the ROE is there to see. All of it is fiction. All of it is meaningless because of the way that revenue is recognized. 
Now, um, you know, we know that Solpats is, is a, holds um, stakes in different companies. Now, depending on how large that stake is, it will recognize revenue in a different way. So for something like, um, uh, there are some companies where it owns, I think it's, it's more than 20% or 30%. Um, they actually recognize the entire revenue portion of that company on their own accounts, even though they only get access to, you know, 30 or 40% of it. And there are other stakes in, where they own a smaller stake where they won't recognize any of the profit that comes from that company on their own accounts. They only recognize the dividends that flow as cash onto their own accounts. So the, the, the profit is a mishmash of different um, accounting policies. And it doesn't really reflect what's happening inside the business or how much that business is worth. My advice is to, is to put that profit statement aside. Look at the cash that's coming in and out. That helps to understand whether they can fund their dividends, which is a huge attraction of this business. It's actually, I think it's got a 40-year unbroken streak of rising dividends, 40 years, mm. um, the longest on the ASX. Um you can also look on the balance sheet where they account for their investments and see um, how much of the value of those investments um, is reflected in the share price. And, and often you see that the share price trades at a discount to the value of all its investments, which is an attractive proposition. Mm. Yeah, and, and that logic applies to other um Listed investment companies and conglomerates like Berkshire is the classic one that comes to mind when you talk about, mm. and Buffett has often spoken himself about the the accounting practices and and how that makes some of the uh, some of the metrics like like that profit metric uh, a little bit uh, unhelpful. I think might be the right term. We've still got one company to go, a company that you say breaks all, almost every rule of sensible investors, uh, but it is up almost 300% in the past five years. So we're very excited to get into that one. Uh, but first, a quick ad break so we can actually afford to invest in some of these companies ourselves. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before the break, uh, we've been speaking about a few companies that you cover at Intelligent Investor. If people do want to uh, see, uh, hear and read more from Gaurav and his team at Intelligent Investor, uh, go to intelligentinvestor.com.au. There is a 15-day free trial that you can sign up to and you can read all of these articles that we're referring to and more. Uh, we've spoken so far about Orica, 
Uh, the ASX ticker is ORI. That is on the watch list. Then we spoke about Washington H. Sol Pattinson, ASX ticker SOL. That is a hold for Gurav. Uh, and we've got a third company here, Mineral Resources, ASX ticker MIN, also a hold. And Gurav, I want to start with the quote that we've teased a couple of times in this episode. Mineral resources breaks almost every rule of sensible investors. It mines two commodities that generate no synergies, and one of them, the iron ore operation, is high cost, small volume, and low quality. So with such a quote, tell us uh, why mineral resources isn't a sell um, and a little bit about the company for those unfamiliar with it. Yeah, it, it's a rule breaker. And this is something I think is in, is really important for investing generally as much as it is for minerals, mineral resources specifically. If you want to just be safe and not lose money, there are a whole bunch of rules you can follow. And I think we know what those rules are. You know, you want to be in a business with uh, no debt, with good management. You know, we know we know what they are. Every fund manager lists off the, those traits that, that everyone looks for. I mean, that's fine if you don't want to make errors and you want average returns. But the way to get really good returns is not to find companies that follow those rules. It's to, it's to find companies that break the rules. And as an investor, the way to get above average returns is not to follow those investing rules, is to understand when it's okay to break them. And, and so this is something we do quite often. We look for these businesses that, that do things differently, um, that break rules. Um, I refer to this as hustle. You know, we've seen this, you, you see it all the time in, in little businesses. Um, you know, sometimes you might go to a corner store and there's, um, you know, they have a, a, a business owner there who's doing something differently or a bakery that's doing something differently. It, it's true on a small scale. It's true on a big scale. Minres is a business that just does everything differently. It started life as a crushing business. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with mining, gents, I'm looking at you. Um, <laughs> crushing is a absolutely vital part of mining. It's, it's not just breaking down rock. Crushing means reducing rock to a particular particle size that will pass through a processing plant. So it's not good enough just to break rock. You have to crush it to, a, to an average specific size and rock with all sizes and densities. Um, your crushing plant has to be reliable. It gets serviced all the time. So there has to be an available spare parts um, supply chain and it has to be bespoke to the design and the rock that you're mining on site. So these things are incredibly important. If your crushing plant does not work, your entire operation grinds to a halt. Uh, it has to be reliable and, and be bespoke to the site you're on. Now, Minres started designing these plants and they used to only crush for pretty high cost, crappy miners who couldn't do it themselves. In doing that, they became so good at crushing, they actually now crush for everyone in the industry, including uh, the big boys. They've created a supply chain which covers where, where they can um, replace parts anywhere in WA, all these remote, remote locations, they can get parts there um, so to limit downtime. They're really good. They've got a whole wardrobe full of, uh, virtual wardrobe, full of designs um, that they can borrow off. And they've got IP that's built over decades about how to construct really complex um, processing plants or crushing plants. Now, they've done that um, for years. It's a profitable business. I think it runs incredible returns on capital. It's grown volumes at 20% a year for years, and I think it will continue to do so. And if that's all that Minres was, you'd think, okay, that's a pretty interesting business, um, and, and you'd probably still invest, to be honest. But 
Minres is, is so much more than that. It, it combines crushing with actual ownership of mines, which I think is unique in the industry. So at the moment, they own a whole bunch of iron ore mines, which, as you allude to, those iron ore mines today, they cost about $100 a ton to get the stuff out. Um, they're low quality. They're very expensive. They've got no infrastructural logistics behind them. Iron ore, remember, is is a logistics operation. It's not really a mining operation. Your, your costs are all about moving ore from one place to another. And then digging the stuff out of the ground is very cheap. It's really about moving the stuff um, that determines how profitable you'll be. They have no logistics. They own a high cost, low volume, low quality iron ore mine. And then, you know, instead of sort of fixing that, they went off and bought a whole bunch of lithium mines as well. And, you, you know, if, you, if, if there was a business listed that had a, a crushing operation, a crappy iron ore operation and a lithium operation that barely made any money, you'd think, why would you want to own any of that? <laughs> and you'd be well... And you'd be wise to ask that question. But the key is that they're actually improving the quality of their iron ore business. And I think this has been lost on the market. They're investing uh, billions of dollars to lift um, output and lift grade, and they're building their own logistics chain. And once they do that, this will take them two or three years to do, but once they do that, they'll be the fifth largest iron ore miner in Australia. Costs will go from $100 to about $30. At the moment, they only make money when iron ore prices are sky high. But in a few years' time, they'll make decent returns across the entire cycle, and they'll have built an infrastructure chain that they can monetize from other iron ore miners as well. Um, so the business is going to be transformed in a few years' time. Now, on the lithium side, instead of just mining lithium rock, which is known as spodumene, they actually have dealt themselves into the processing chain, which is where the most of, most of the profit in lithium is actually made. From a ton of of raw lithium rock, if you process that and then sell, sell it, it, it's known as a, as a lithium hydroxide, you get 10 times the revenue as you would from selling just the raw rock. They're now building their processing plant. And again, what looks like a, a, a pretty crappy little rock mining operation is going to be a complex, um, high returning chemical plant by the time um, they're done with it. And I think altogether, um, this is a business that that, that is going to be a not only more profitable, but much higher quality than it is today. Um, and I think that's what's lost on the market. It's still viewed as a mining service business with a crappy iron ore mine attached to it and the option of lithium. In fact, if you look a bit further out, it's going to have a world-class um, mining service operation with an iron ore business that can make money across the cycle and a lithium business that's going to be generating oodles of cash. The business is run by a founder that has a terrific track record that cares about every dollar that gets spent in his business. And it's come from nowhere to be a multi-billion dollar business. You'd think you have to back these guys to succeed in their investment plans when they've done it time and time again. So, Gaurav, just on that uh, point about leadership, you know, we, we set this up with mineral resources breaks or almost every rule. And I feel like, and please correct me if you disagree, but I feel like when we find those rule-breaking businesses, uh, a lot of it is because of the entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO, like the, the reason that they're able to break all these conventions and these rules is because they are just led by generational entrepreneurs that can find ways to break those rules. And Chris Ellison, the founder of Minres, and I think the managing director still probably exemplifies that in the mining space. So tell us about 
uh, the Minres leadership team. And I guess what are the traits that you see in that team that are transferable across all the companies that that you look for? Like what what makes a great leader and uh, and an investable leader? And and do you see that in uh, Minres's team? Yeah, you, you've just touched upon what I think is is the most important competitive advantage um, any business can have, and. You know, it's not network effects, it's not scale, it's not cost, it's culture. And we don't often recognize or speak about cultural leadership because it's it's hard to recognize, it's hard to pin down, it's unquantifiable, and it's often impossible to replicate. Mm. Um, but when you break down businesses again and again, this is the differentiator that matters. And that's what we spend a lot of time looking for. It's actually looking at looking for businesses that can exemplify what I've described as hustle. It's just a, a culture that wants to succeed, that goes further, that does everything better. It's hard to identify, hard to explain, but you know it when you see it. And it's all over Minres. I think Minres is one of the great exemplifiers of hustle, one of the great exemplifiers of entrepreneurial culture. When they, wanted, when they want to do something, they just do it. You know, um, a couple of years ago, um, uh, Minres decided that um, that uh, it was too difficult sourcing um, gas and, and hydrocarbons to run their fleet. And um, they were worried about the risk of escalating fuel costs. So, you know, most companies would go off and find a hedging partner and just hedge their costs two or three years in advance. Um, Chris Ellison set up an entirely independent um, gas exploration business. From scratch, he thought, right, let's go explore for our own hydrocarbons and that way we'll be hedged against cost rises. And they've now stumbled across what might be the largest onshore gas discovery in WA in about 30 years. You know, um, not, not everything they touch is a success. You know, they found that um, on, their dump, on their dump trucks, the trays were deteriorating really fast and it was costing them a lot of money to, to replace these, these enormous dump truck trays. So they had this huge plan where they're going to make them out of carbon fiber. They spent tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars investing in a carbon fiber uh, platform that could um, uh, produce all these truck trays. And they found it didn't work. So they quickly just abandoned it and went back to doing what they were used to do. You know, they try things. I've rarely come across a business that is so voracious for profit that they try and monetize everything they possibly can. Every time these guys build a mine, they provide every service Every time they do a joint venture, it comes with a life of mine service contract. So every non-mining element of that operation gets serviced by Minres and Minres earns the margin. Minres does the work. I can't think of another business in mining um, that operates that way, but it's the kind of mindset I like to see replicated across any investment I'm looking at. Well, uh, I guess... We'll all have our eyes closely watching if Chris leaves the company because that would true, be, that true, would be yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, a point to review the thesis. <laughs> <laughs> but Gaurav, we uh, unfortunately have uh, run uh, come close to running out of time. If uh, if you're listening in the Equity Mates community and are interested in what the intelligent investor do do and, and for more uh, analysis on Australian listed companies, head to intelligentinvestor.com.au. They do have that 15-day free trial for you to get a sense of um, some of the great work that the team does. But we usually close with three final questions that we ask all of our guests, Gaurav. So I ran over to you. So Gaurav, the first of the final three, do you have any books that you consider must read? Oh, yes. Um, Investing is wonderful that way and that all the wisdom has been learned before. All the lessons are there. 
And um, if you're if you're that way inclined, you can actually learn the mistakes of of all these people who've come before you and not make them yourself, which is the best way to do it. But one of the best books I've I've come across is is one by Howard Marks called um, The Most Important Thing. Mm. And um, the the joke in, is that um, you know it's it's written in a bunch of chapters, and each chapter is the most important thing, and it covers another another topic. And he there's about you know ten or twelve topics which he thinks which he says is the most important thing. So. You know, it's not just one thing, it's a whole series of things. But the reason I really like this is not the, it doesn't really explain detailed financials. It doesn't go through company examples, but it really outlines better than any other book I've seen the mindset of a successful investor. And that is someone who is dispassionate, analytical, um, quick to change their mind, unafraid of failure, and deeply independent. Um, Howard Marks, if you get a chance to listen to him, is just a, a next level at all those traits. He's, he's one of my investing heroes. I've I've read that book more times than I can count, and I can't recommend it high, highly enough. Mm. The highest praise you get in investing is when Warren Buffett says you're good, and Buffett has said about Howard Marks's memos. That yeah, when he yeah, sees yeah. them, they're like the first thing he reads. So if it's good enough for Buffett. It's definitely good enough mm. for us. Definitely. So, Gaurav, the second question, forget valuation, forget the share price at the moment, just purely on company fundamentals. What's the best company you've ever come across? That I've ever come across? you've ever come across. (laughs) Wow. Okay, look, I... I I actually think the the best business I have ever seen might just be Apple. Yeah. It is astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing. Um, my, my family owns Apple shares. My wife works for Apple, mind you. Um, so I think um, <laughs> I might be a little bit biased there. <laughs> but I can't think of another business that combines um, you know, technical know-how with marketing now with deep entrepreneurial hustle. Um, think of any any. Um, part of the business that they've touched, they've revolutionized. You know, they've changed the way, uh, they've changed retail. Forget about the iPhone. iPhone, we all know, is revolutionary. They've changed retail. They've changed music. They've changed movies. Um, they are now the world's largest watchmaker, the world's largest headphone maker. Um, I think they're going to be a significant force in payments, in health, and in augmented reality. That M1 chip they've just designed is the most advanced chip ever done. And 10 years ago, they knew nothing about chip design. Mm-hmm. This is an impressive firm and I think it's the best business in the world. Yeah, love that. We all, we spoke on Monday about uh, the car play ecosystem that they're building as well. And um, they're, mm. they're, they're quietly amassing you know millions of uh, car users and the platform they're building there and then they're allowing other developers to build apps uh, yep. to, to do things like pay for fuel and pay for electric vehicle charging all through the Apple ecosystem. Um, it's just another platform that they're going to dominate one day. Anyway, we are running out of time, so let's exactly. let's stop worrying about <laughs> Apple and uh, go back, Gaurav, to your early days as, of an, as an investor when you were first buying those computer share shares. What advice <laughs> would you give to your younger self? Hmm. When I was younger, I had a whole series of lists of, of check. I had a checklist full of all these detailed analytical questions that I would tick off, um, and I thought I could find a great investment by by ticking off that checklist. You know, and it's the same checklist I hear brought up over and over and over again. Everyone is looking for the same thing, and there's nothing 
silly about that. These are sensible traits to be searching for. But if you're doing the same as everyone else, you're going to get the same results as everyone else. So my advice would be learn the rules, learn the checklist, and then learn to put it away. The more you can, you can think outside away from that checklist mentality, the more you can think imaginatively about a business and look for the hustle in the business, I think the better you'll be as an investor. You, you got to keep learning and then and then trust your instinct enough to put the damn checklist down. Love that. Love the hustle vibe. That could be the episode title, put the damn checklist down. Put the damn checklist <laughs> down. Well, Guru, it's been, it's been a pleasure. We thank you so much for your time. As I said, if, uh, if any of the Equitymates community are interested in the Intelligent Investor, head to intelligentinvestor.com.au to check out Uh, some of the articles that they have written on ASX-listed companies. I'm sure we'll touch base again, Gaurav. We've thoroughly enjoyed your insight on those three three listed companies, and I know that our audience would have taken some value from that. So thank you very much. Gentlemen, pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we should say before we go, a reminder that Gaurav is not aware of your personal financial circumstances and – Do your own research. (laughs) Thanks, Gaurav. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.